Hi, this is Alan Ruff, the Thursday host of A Public Affair. If you have a moment and uh, the resources, remember to support the station. And if you will, head over to wrtfm.org to donate and to see what else is going on at the station. Six foot six above sea level. I grab my mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. And welcome to this, the Thursday edition of A Public Affair. I'm your host for this hour. My name is Alan Ruff. <clears throat> Al Jazeera Al Jazeera English reported yesterday, yesterday morning, that Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu shattered any hope of a permanent ceasefire by pledging that the war against Hamas and the mounting toll inflicted upon the people of Gaza would resume. Netanyahu said in a video statement that, quote, in the last days I hear a question. After this phase of returning our abductees is exhausted, will Israel return to fighting. So my answer is an unequivocal yes. Joining us to go beyond mainstream coverage and to unpack some deeper understanding of the current still evolving situation that uh, might lie ahead is Muin Rabani, a graduate of Tufts University and Georgetown University's Center for Contemporary Arab Studies. Rabani specializes in Palestinian affairs in the contemporary Middle East he is the co-editor of the e-magazine Jadalia, and he has published, presented, and commented widely on Middle East issues through major print, television, and digital arenas. Muin Rabani, welcome back to WORT. Thank you very much, and thank you for having me. It's good to be back. Muin Rabani, in your ongoing Jadalia piece, Thoughts on the Truce, that began appearing earlier in November, uh, last Saturday, you reminded your readers that, quote, on October 7th, Israel vowed to destroy Hamas, to eradicate it as an organization, to neuter it as a military force, political movement, and governing entity. And that more recently, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu stated that he had given Israel's foreign intelligence agency, Mossad, orders to assassinate all Hamas leaders residing in exile. You asked then in that piece, uh, at that point, 50 days into the war, how close Israel was to achieving its objectives. Is it any closer, was it any closer then or now? Um, you posed some short answers. Talk about that for a moment. Well, I, I tried to look at... Um, how far Israel has come in terms of achieving its objectives of, on the one hand, um, eradicating Hamas as a movement and particularly as a military force, and on the other, um, in um, getting all of its captives and prisoners returned from the Gaza Strip without, as not only Israel but the U.S. insisted, without any negotiations, um, without any um, uh, truce to enable these things. And um, when I looked at the situation, I'm not a military analyst, but I think the situation is so clear that one doesn't need to have any particular knowledge of, uh, of military affairs. It became apparent that Israel has achieved virtually um, none of its objectives as we've seen uh, from uh, the release of captives in the past week um, and from, from the truce itself, Hamas remains a coherent force. It was capable of ordering all of its forces to cease firing simultaneously at exactly the same moment and thus to um, uh, observe the truce. It was able to command all of its forces to continue firing until the last moment um, before the truce. It has um, released its um, civilian hostages at, from multiple locations, at multiple locations, in a very orderly fashion, including in, in areas of Gaza City um, that Israel claims to have under its control. It has um, uh, killed 
fewer Hamas leaders and commanders. In fact, um, uh, the only uh, Hamas figure who could be described as a leader who was killed is the speaker of the um, uh, Palestinian parliament in the Gaza Strip, Ahmed Bahar, who's, who's not a military figure. Um, but it has killed less um, uh, commanders than either UN staff uh, or journalists or medical personnel. Its greatest uh, achievement is raising the Israeli flag over Al Shifa Hospital, which, in contrast um, to US and Israeli propaganda that they had confirmed intelligence that it was a Palestinian Pentagon, turned out to be nothing more than a hospital. So there's a slight discrepancy between Israel raising its flag over a hospital and Soviet forces raising their flag over the Reichstag in Berlin in 1945, or the Americans uh, raising the American flag at uh, Mount Suribachi in, uh, in Iwo Jima. But perhaps most importantly, again, the US and Israel on October 7th vowed that they would achieve the objectives of eradicating Hamas and returning all the captives without any negotiations and without any ceasefire. Well. The U.S. and Israel have been negotiating with Hamas, um, in fact, negotiating with Yahya Sinwar, um, the Hamas leader in the Gaza Strip, who is viewed as an architect of the October 7th attack, and they have been reaching agreements with him, and they have been implementing those agreements. And those agreements include not only a truce, but also an exchange of captives. In other words, um, Israel has thus far been able to retrieve a number of its captives and in exchange had had to has had to release three times as many captives um, uh, from its own uh, prisons, women and, and children. You're listening to Muin Rabani, the co-editor of the e-magazine Jadalia, uh, a specialist on Palestine and the broader Middle East. Muin Rabani, you stated after the agreement upon tr upon the truce, uh, excuse me. You stated after the agreement for the truce was announced that while it was difficult to predict whether or not the ceasefire would be extended, which it has, by the way, today, um, that beyond its expiration set for yesterday, but that a number of factors were in play that would encourage a resumption of the Israeli offensive. What might might you lay out some of these factors uh, that informed your assessment? Start with Netanyahu. Yes, and I think Netanyahu's role has been vastly exaggerated in this, in the sense that um, this entire conflict is almost being presented as Netanyahu's war, as if the main reason that we have seen um, uh, this crisis and... Uh, um, the October 7th attack by Hamas and the subsequent um, Israeli war on the Gaza Strip and its continuation can all be reduced to Benjamin Netanyahu and can all be reduced to his political uh, and, and uh, legal problems and his desire to avoid conviction on corruption charges and an eventual prison sentence. I don't think um, Netanyahu is an irrelevant factor in this equation, but I also don't think he's um, the main one. I think one has to understand that there is a huge stain of dishonor, a stigma of failure on the Israeli military and intelligence leadership because um, the Israeli uh, security uh, structure on the 7th of October collapsed like a house of cards at the first sign of contact. And it's that leadership that is most determined to find a way to at least partially re uh, remove the stain and stigma um, on, its, uh, on its reputation. The same holds for the political leadership. And there are, in fact, um, members of Netanyahu's government who have threatened to um, uh, leave the government and collapse the governing coalition if the war does not resume. So this idea that it's all about Netanyahu and his personal calculations 
I think um, uh, doesn't make very much sense. Similarly, the U.S. is looking at the situation, or was at least, not only in terms of its solid support for Israel, but also in terms of its own geopolitical um, uh, interests and regional interests, and had initially come to the conclusion that an Israeli failure would affect the United States negatively, and that an Israeli success would redound positively upon the United States uh, regionally and globally. So there were um, uh, a number of, of uh, factors that led to uh, the prolongation of the Israeli onslaught uh, in Gaza, at least up until the first ceasefire. And as, as you've noted, there have been a number of extensions and there are now negotiations, much more complicated negotiations that may well fail um, for a longer extension of that uh, ceasefire. You know, I, I keep, as you talk about these extensions and negotiations going on, the phrase keeps coming back to me uh, that's been ubiquitous for so many years, that we don't negotiate with terrorists. Yes, um, unless, uh, you know, um, you fail militarily to achieve anything and come to the conclusion that you can only begin to achieve some of your objectives uh, through uh, negotiations with them. I want to stick for a moment with um, elements within the Israelis governor, Israel's governing coalition and larger society who see the current crisis as an opportunity. How so? In what sense? Talk about the various vantage points, uh, many of them to the right of Netanyahu. I think there are two main opportunities um, that a number of Israeli leaders see. And again, this is not just Netanyahu, it's and it's people to his right, but it's also people in, in the Israeli political and security establishment. Um, Israel has, since the 1950s, in fact, um, had an obsession with thinning out um, the population of the Gaza Strip, and particularly of uh, significantly reducing the number of refugees that reside in the Gaza Strip, because over 75% of the population of the Gaza Strip consists of uh, refugees who were ethnically cleansed from mandatory Palestine in 1948, or their descendants. And um, uh, given um, uh, the shock created by the attacks of October 7th and the um, uh, unprecedented levels of Western support for anything and everything that Israel decided to do in response after that, um, Israel thought it would be a golden opportunity to ethnically cleanse the Gaza Strip and push its population out into the desert, into uh, the Sinai Peninsula. And this was, in fact, an initiative that was wholly and enthusiastically embraced by the United States in the person of Secretary of State um, Antony Blinken, whose first visit to the region was um, to coordinate the removal of Gaza's population to Egypt's Sinai Peninsula um, with the support of Arab governments. I mean, the guy really is a clueless airhead. He genuinely believed that when he started meeting with pro-Western Arab leaders, their main message was, would be, how can we help you help our Israeli friends? And of course, the initiative um, uh, fell flat at the first hurdle and was stopped dead in its tracks. It was stillborn because pro-Western Arab governments, and Egypt in particular, categorically rejected this initiative and any cooperation with it um, whatsoever. There is a second um, um, uh, opportunity that is seen particularly by people on the Israeli uh, far right, though not only them, and that is that under cover of this crisis and under cover of this war, and with international attention very much focused on the Gaza Strip, um, that there can be a, a very significant intensification of um, dispossession, of um, uh, land confiscation, and of ethnic cleansing also in areas of the West Bank, which in an ideal 
um, situation would lead to uh, the removal of significant numbers of Palestinians from the West Bank to Jordan, which for similar reasons is also um, uh, not going to happen, or at least pushing them into the main Palestinian urban centers in the West Bank um, uh, and thus expanding further the areas under exclusive Israeli control within um, uh, the West Bank and East Jerusalem. And then there is a third one, uh, and this I think is primarily reflected in, in reviews of Netanyahu and some of the generals, which is um, that this is not only about Hamas, Israel still has an account to settle with Hezbollah in Lebanon, um, and of course also uh, with Iran. Now what happened at the outset of this crisis is that Washington came to the conclusion that the Israeli military is incapable of fighting a two-front war. In other words, in both the Gaza Strip and in Lebanon and began sending aircraft carriers um, to the Mediterranean and made very clear that if Hezbollah launched a full-scale assault on Israel, that um, American forces would operate um, in direct support of Israel. In other words, that the U.S. would become a direct party to such a conflict. The conflict has also expanded regionally. We've seen um, uh, missile and drone attacks um, on, uh, on Israel from uh, Yemen. We've seen attacks on U.S. forces in Syria and Iraq. Um, by pro-Iranian uh, militias primarily based in, uh, in Iraq and so on. And I think there are some in the Israeli establishment who believe that if they play their cards right, this could, under ideal circumstances, develop into a direct U.S.-Iranian uh, confrontation. I think it's a unlikely and far-fetched scenario but there are people who believe that this would be a very uh, good thing. In effect, Israel could fight Iran to the last American. These elements within Israeli society and, and for that matter, here in the United States, uh, they would like to see the U.S. get drawn into a, a larger direct confrontation with Lebanon and elsewhere. What do they hope to gain from such a, an expanded conflict? Well, I, I think, you know, they, um, uh, they would like to uh, cut their adversaries down to size, if not remove them uh, altogether. Um, and there's a whole host of reasons. I mean, this, these groups and states who are um, uh, collectively known um, as a so-called uh, axis of resistance is a coalition that is opposed to Western influence in the Middle East that seeks to challenge uh, uh, the U.S. Uh, presence uh, in the Middle East that is opposed to Israel and seeks to challenge um, its uh, expanding uh, influence uh, in the Arab world. And there is a sense that this war could be an opportunity to directly confront this coalition, to eliminate some of its members, um, to um, severely weaken others, and, and uh, and to um, significantly reduce uh, the influence um, of its uh, of its um, uh, most powerful members, which in this case would be um, uh, Iran. Um, but again, um, I think the calculation, especially if we speak about the United States, I think the calculations have changed somewhat uh, during the past month. It's it's quite possible that you also had figures in, in the U.S., perhaps um, uh, uh, Antony Blinken, who seems to be in love with war in the Middle East, um, who perhaps also embraced um, uh, this idea. But what we've seen now is that the U.S. is increasingly um, seeking to find ways to prevent a full-scale resumption and significant escalation of the Israeli war on the Gaza Strip, not for the reasons that we've been hearing in the media about care about uh, civilian casualties and, and, and humanitarian supplies and all the rest of it, which could be resolved with a phone call from the White House. But I think the real fear is that you cannot have an escalation 
of Israel's war in the Gaza Strip without also having an escalation, for example, on the Israeli-Lebanese um, uh, border and potentially um, other parties getting uh, more uh, directly involved. And this is something that I think that those who are now uh, most in charge of, uh, of US policy on this issue are seeking uh, to prevent. And that's why um, uh, the Americans have endorsed these um, uh, extensions of the truce and so on, and are beginning to think seriously about an off-ramp. I, I should say that I, I do expect that at some point there will be at least one more furious um, Israeli uh, attempt to still try to achieve something of military value in the Gaza Strip, and that it will, um, as 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 previously, be supported and endorsed and and armed and supplied uh, by Washington. But I do think that um, one or two more rounds of that, notwithstanding. Um, the clock is most likely uh, winding down already. You're listening to Muin Rabani, analyst, commentator, co-editor of Jadalia e-magazine, which is very good, by the way. I want to encourage people to find it online and uh, lots of insights there. Thank you. Muin Rabani, you, you've pointed out that Israeli leaders and their U.S. backers have a tendency to believe that where force fails to achieve an objective, the solution is even even greater violence. And this forms an additional incentive for them to resume hostilities. You touched on it just now, but maybe you could take it a little bit deeper that you assume that a resumption of the onslaught on Gaza in broader Palestinian society is all but inevitable. Well, um, on, on, on the first point, I mean, there is a historic pattern here where um, uh, Israel has consistently um, sought to resolve political challenges through the use of force. Um, uh, 1967 is a very good example. Um, 1982, the invasion of Lebanon um, is another very good example. If we go back um, uh, to the first uh, intifada that erupted in 1987, um, Israel deployed huge numbers of soldiers to the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, an absolutely brutal campaign to repress what were in effect um, popular, mass popular demonstrations by unarmed civilians. And the longer this um, uprising went on, um, rather than seeking a political resolution, um, it kept applying greater and greater force until it was ultimately um, uh, pushed in a different direction by the United States after the 1991 um, uh, Kuwait War. And so here I see um, here I see the same um, uh, pattern. You know, there have been a number of confrontations between Israel and the Palestinians in the Gaza Strip um, since um, uh, Israel disengaged from that uh, territory in 2005, even though formally its occupation remained. And it seems to have never occurred to um, the Israeli leadership to either find a negotiated um, mechanism through which it lifts the blockade um, or engages in a broader political process that would see an end to the occupation of the territories it occupied in 1967 because it has a confidence that it has a sufficiently overwhelming superiority in, in um, uh, power and that it can deploy that power at will um, and therefore doesn't have to engage seriously with the um, political challenges um, that it faces. Again, you're listening to Muin Rabani, commentator and analyst on Palestine and the broader Middle East. If you want to join in a conversation today with a question, a comment, an observation, give us a call at 608-256-2001. The phone lines are open at this moment. 
William Rabani, you've in several places noted that although the Gaza Strip has been substantially destroyed, Hamas has yet to be significantly degraded. That the Israeli army has yet to kill more, as you said before, has failed to kill more Hamas commanders than United Nations staff. Let's take the discussion of Hamas a little bit further. Specifically, the organization's ability to remain intact and Israelis' inability to defeat it and what that has meant, especially in regard to the negotiating table. Well, I, I, I should start by saying um, uh, we have to bear in mind the overwhelming disparity in force um, between Israel and Hamas. I mean, Hamas has neither an air force nor an air defense network nor um, uh, armored divisions or you know anything. And Israel is a nuclear power, one of whose serving cabinet ministers has, has in fact advocated uh, using a nuclear bomb against the Gaza Strip, something that went that was not only not condemned, but went entirely, unanimously, entirely unacknowledged um, by Western heads of government and heads of state. You know, they just looked the other way and pretended this had uh, uh, never happened. Um, and, and so my point is that if Israel was prepared to expend sufficient blood and treasure um, uh, and in terms of um, its um, uh, international uh, relations, I mean, as a theoretical matter, it of course could um, reoccupy um, every last square inch of the Gaza Strip and over the course of a number of months um, uh, or, or longer, um, eradicate Hamas at least as, as a, a military force or at the very least very, very significantly um, weaken it. But the point I think um, we need to take into account here is that Hamas is, is not just an armed uh, militia. It's a political movement. It's a social network. Um, uh, and also, of course, has a military force. And it's one that is very deeply embedded um, uh, within its own uh, society. And that means that Hamas has some kind of presence um, in, in wherever there are significant uh, Palestinian communities. So when you talk about eliminating Hamas, you're not just talking about um, uh, getting rid of armed uh, fighters and their commanders, or just getting rid of uh, political leaders. You're talking about civil servants. You're talking about um, uh, social institutions and, and their staff. Um, you're, you're talking about a whole network of, of, of people and institutions. And so it's very hard, I think, to completely disaggregate any such movement from the society in, um, in, in which it operates. And I think another advantage that Hamas has under the current circumstances. It's it's fighting on its own land. Um, and it has been in effectively full control of that territory since um, 2007. And, um, uh, and therefore, I think has, you know, what, what I guess you would call the home field um, uh, advantage. And I suspect that Israel turning large portions of the Gaza Strip into rubble is probably more to the advantage of the defenders of that territory than of those trying to uh, conquer it. 608-256-2001, if you want to join us today with a question, a comment, an observation, give us a call. The phone lines are open. One more time, 608-256-2001. Mouline Rabani, you've listed a number of facts on the ground, that is, or indicators that suggest a counter to the dominant Israeli-U.S. narratives that assert Hamas has been substantially weakened, and, and that's why it basically yielded. You, you touched on this, of course, uh, several times already, but I want to continue on with this discussion. Um, the accomplishments or achievements, if one can call them such, that Hamas has made uh, and, and it's, well, at this point, defense uh, against a, a larger force. 
Well, I think it's less about any um, military achievements by Hamas, although I, you know, I would say that its ability um, to remain a coherent fighting force after um, uh, this uh, prolonged onslaught that has amounted to the most intensive bombing campaign in the history of the Middle East over a miniature territory, we should also add. And again, we talk about the most intensive bombing campaign in the history of this region. We're not talking about um, Scandinavia. We're talking about the Middle East, which has already seen its um, uh, share of wars. But my general point here is it's, it's less about military achievements by Hamas, um, some of which um, I guess you could identify, but it's much more about the failure of the U.S. armed, supplied, and supported Israeli military to achieve any military objectives of significance. And it is in that context that these two governments, which on October 7th vowed there would be no truce, no negotiations, and, all, and only um, victory, um, have found themselves compelled to engage in negotiations with the architect of the October 7th attacks, um, you know, through Qatari and Egyptian medi mediation, to be sure, but nonetheless, negotiations, reach agreements, and implement those agreements. Um. Excuse me, Jack, our engineer tells tells me that there are a couple of callers waiting with uh, questions or comments. Hello, Scott, you're on the air. Thank you very much. I would like to ask the guest to explain a little bit about uh, the Israelis' claim to the land itself and how Palestinians dispute that and how that is driving their current resistance. Uh, I will hang up. And thank you so much for the program. Uh, should I respond? Sure. Yeah, thank you. I I um, assume that the question relates to um, uh, the territories occupied by Israel in 1967. Um, and um, under international law, these are occupied territories. And military occupation, as bad as it may sound, is actually um, a legitimate status under international law. In other words, um, uh, there is nothing inherently illegal about one state engaging in the military occupation of, of foreign territory in the context of a conflict. There are, however, um, certain conditions that, that need to be met in order to qualify as a military occupation, one of which is that it has to be temporary in, temporary in nature. Um, another of which is that you can't annex that territory because then, of course, it's no longer uh, temporary. And third of all, um, that you have to make um, uh, good faith efforts uh, to uh, negotiate an end to this conflict um, uh, in order to uh, relinquish that land because the acquisition of territory by war is also illegal under international law. Now, the problem we have here is that Israel has already annexed significant portions of these territories, most notably East Jerusalem um, and parts of the, of the border zone between um, Israel um, and the West Bank, and has um, settled much of the West Bank. It used to have settlements in the Gaza Strip as well. And these are not military bases. Uh, these are townships and cities populated by um, what Israel would term civilians, um, uh, many of whom are armed, but nonetheless, I mean, these are not serving military soldiers in, in, in uniform and part of the regular army. They're more like auxiliary militias. But you have you know, entire towns have sprouted up, uh, which are exclusively um, uh, for uh, residents by uh, by Israeli uh, Jews, and Palestinians cannot live there, even though they're built on their own uh, land. So it's quite clear that Israel has a um, intends to have a permanent 
presence in those territories, or at least very significant portions of them, and has absolutely no intention of relinquishing uh, those lands in the context of any diplomatic negotiations with the Palestinians. That that's what we saw during the past three decades of um, of the Oslo process. So another complicating factor is that Israel says that actually um, the West Bank, um, which it refers to not as a West Bank, but as Judea and Samaria, are the historical heartlands of the Jewish people, you know, mobilizing um, biblical history as if it's um, a real estate uh, document. And so, you know, Palestinians might ask the question, well, if this is the heart heartland of the Jewish people, then perhaps let's trade. Okay, you get the West Bank, and we'll get um, uh, and we'll take over the seventy-eight percent of mandatory Palestine, which is apparently not your heartland. But um, you know, Israel, in a sense, um, uh, wants to have it both ways. So, what the point I'm trying to make is that this is not a conventional conflict where one party has seized. Um, uh, the territory of the other party for military advantage or in order to influence the political outcome of a conflict, um, but rather has seized that land because it believes um, that that land is inherently um, its own and intends to retain it on a permanent basis. We have one more caller waiting with a question or comment. Hello, Ron. You're on the air. Uh, hi, Alan. Uh, thank you for the show. Um, my question is, uh, could your guests explain that, as far as I remember, as uh, Ben-Gurion worked with Palestinians at the very beginning of the creation of the uh, Israeli state, uh, and the labor movements on both sides tried to reach agreements uh, that would uh, avoid conflicts and so forth. And I'd like to get from your guess why that collapsed uh, after Ben-Gurion left office. And I'll just uh, listen. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I, actually, that's, that's um, uh, not quite accurate. Um, one of the foundational uh, principles of uh, the Zionist movement in, in Palestine prior to 1948 is what it termed the conquest of Hebrew labor. Um, and that actually involved um, uh, pushing Palestinians out of the labor market and uh, replacing them uh, with um, uh, Jewish colonists. It's, it's, it's a long and detailed question, which I won't get into here. Um, and in certain respects, it failed because there were, you know, for example, um, uh, um, Jewish immigrants from Eastern Europe um, were not very well versed in agricultural patterns in the Middle East and, you know, often relied on Palestinian labor and so on. But at the end of the day, the conquest of Hebrew labor um, imposed a formal boycott of um, uh, Jewish-owned um, uh, uh, companies and institutions um, employing Arab labor. And that, in fact, was the formal um, reason that the Arab League in 1945 used for its um, uh, boycott of, uh, of when 1948 became uh, the State of Israel. In other words, um, they presented this as a retaliation um, for a Zionist boycott of, uh, of um, Arab labor. There, there have, of course, um, been efforts at, at working class um, uh, solidarity um, uh, between um, uh, Jews and, 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 and Palestinians. I, I don't like to use the term Jews and Palestinians because they're not mutually exclusive, but I think um, you get my point. But but these have, on the whole, taken place outside um, uh, the framework of the Zionist movement in the state of Israel, of whom Ben-Gurion was the very personification uh, for so many decades 
from the 1930s until the 1960s. So um, he's not someone I would in any way associate um, with these efforts you uh, uh, you asked about. Muin Rabani, how, how are we to understand Israel's systematic and deliberate attacks on the civilian population of the Gaza Strip, its systematic destruction of civilian infrastructure? What is the function of targeting uh, civil society like it has done? Well, I think it serves um, several functions. Um, in the immediate context of, um, uh, of, of the current crisis, I think the first response would be that we should understand this as an act of revenge, as an orgy of revenge. Um, uh, the attacks of October 7th um, were the most uh, significant attacks on Israel since it was established in 1948. I think you can make the argument that from a military perspective, the joint Egyptian-Syrian offensive in October 1973 was more significant, but what set um, October 7th apart, uh, quite apart from uh, the large number of, of uh, not only um, uh, civilian but also military casualties was that in contrast to October 1973 it took place within Israeli territory we're not talking about the Golan Heights or the Sinai you know the east bank uh, of the Sinai Peninsula uh, Sinai Peninsula here uh, of the Suez Canal rather so um, I think you know um, Israel's first response was um, we're going to ensure that your body count is a lot higher than ours. Um, I, th I, I think that's definitely part of the equation. A second part is that we were talking earlier about um, uh, a desire among the Israeli leadership to see the population of the Gaza Strip removed from the Gaza Strip to the desert, to the Sinai um, Peninsula. And I think um, the idea existed that with this terror bombing, um, that with making the Gaza Strip unfit for human habitation, um, that would enable uh, this initiative. Either people um, uh, fleeing for their lives, or if they were um, decided not to, or the Egyptians stopped them, or whatever, then um, they would gradually um, uh, leave because the Gaza Strip had simply become um, unfit for human habitation. I think a third um, explanation is that it's something Israel has consistently done and it's something that is not unique to Israel. We've seen it in many other conflicts where there are um, uh, counterinsurgency practices, if you will, that often when a superior military power um, uh, en encounters challenges in eliminating a weaker uh, military adversary that is embedded in a society, um, it focuses its attacks on that society in the hope that that society will then bring pressure to bear on the leadership um, to, um, to basically um, uh, surrender. So I think there are elements of, of all three involved here. It reminds me very much of, uh, of course, the longer British history that was, in a sense, handed down to uh, U.S. thinkers, especially during the Vietnam era, yeah, draining, draining, draining the lake or the, the pond, removing, yes, you know, just displacing, and making it uninhabitable, and uh, uh, destroying the base of operations for uh, the, the the lesser force, the guerrilla. Yeah. Army or whatever. I, I think that's a, that's a um, uh, very good um, analogy, perhaps with the distinction that we're in Vietnam. At le the Americans at least went through the motions of claiming to try to win the hearts and minds of the Vietnamese people. Here, it's very much a question of arms and legs. We have, of course, uh, as as we get toward the end of our, let's get in one more question. Uh, Miles, hi, you're on the air. Hi, thanks. I was surprised to hear your guest say that uh, Netanyahu had essentially little influence, um, given the uh, protests that have been going on for so long in his own position. 
Um, if if he is just say a figurehead, then where else is would one find the uh, others? It would it in uh, in that part of the world. Thanks. Th- thank you for that question. Um, my, my point was actually um, uh, somewhat different, is that I've seen um, many critics of Israel's policy seek to reduce it to the person of um, Netanyahu and his legal travails and trying to explain, almost personify this conflict um, and this war to the extent that it wouldn't um, exist if uh, Netanyahu didn't have um, those issues. And and my point is not that Netanyahu is just a figurehead or doesn't have any influence. It's, it's rather to make the observation that I find it very difficult to believe that Netanyahu could single-handedly drag Israel into this war and prolong it for as long as it's lasted um, in a transparent attempt, clear to everyone in the Israeli leadership that the only or the main reason they're fighting is to help him um, escape forward, if you will, from his uh, uh, legal difficulties. I think um, uh, this requires a certain consensus within the Israeli leadership. Um, Netanyahu is the leader of that government, and of course he has influence, and of course um his, his his views are prominent in decisions, but I think we need to understand this as a pro, as, as a joint project of the Israeli political and military um, uh, establishment rather than as an individual initiative. That was a point I was seeking to make. You know, we got a few more minutes left in the hour. There's, of course, one more caller that wants to get in. If we keep it brief, we'll, we'll see what happens here. Uh, Hi, you're on the air. Hello? Did, did we lose him, Jade? Steve? Steve, are you there? Well, apparently not. I'm sorry. Um, <clears throat> as we, as we begin to wrap up, hello? Hello, Alan. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, Mr. Rabani, uh, Israel conquered the West Bank from Jordan in 67. Jordan has long since surrendered all claims to sovereignty, sovereignty there. How does this affect the precise nature of the territories under Israeli law uh, related to some of your remarks f- from above? Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Um, well, the short answer is it doesn't. Um, there, there's a theory among um, Israeli legal scholars who um, uh, are seeking to justify the occupation and its eventual annexation, and it's called the missing reversioner, which is that um, Israel conquered the West Bank from Jordan. Jordan's 1950 or 51 annexation of the West Bank had never been internationally recognized except by the UK and Palestine, and therefore Israel did not have a legitimate sovereign to which to return that territory, and therefore it was a question of finders keepers, uh, more or less. Um, the status of, of of these territories under international law is indisputably clear. Um, number one, they are considered occupied territories, and there are um, uh, a very large number of um, not only United Nations Security Council resolutions, um, but also a landmark um, 2004 uh, advisory opinion by the International Court of Justice in The Hague that can, you know, basically settles these matters as a, as a matter of international law. As far as Jordan, um, as you point out, it maintained its claim to sovereignty over the West Bank until August 1988, when at the height of the Second Intifada, it engaged, it, it conducted what it called the disengagement, and it basically recognized Palestinian um, uh, rights over the West Bank and and um, devolved uh, uh, its own claims to those of, of um, uh, the PLO. What's also interesting here is that there is currently a further case before the International Court of Justice, which is 
challenging the very legality of Israeli rule over the West Bank on the grounds that these annexationist measures, which uh, we were discussing earlier, um, uh, have created a situation in which the Israeli presence in the occupied territories can no longer be classified as a temporary military occupation, a status which would be legitimate under international law, but have become annexation, which is illegal under international law. You know, we're right down, getting toward the end of the hour. In closing, uh, Muin Rabani, might you offer up some current assessment uh, upon your present reading? Um, I was... I checked the news first thing this morning to see if, if the ceasefire was, was holding, and it was, and I was relieved because then I had to, had to think about reframing the whole discussion today. Yeah. Uh, but um, you, you have a crystal ball? Um, I don't, but I'll, I'll try. Look, the, the thing to understand is that um, Israel and Hamas have agreed on a certain formula for these exchanges of captives, which is that Hamas will release um, uh, um, women and uh, children uh, captives, and in exchange, Israel will release um, women and children captives at a ratio of, uh, of one to three. Um, at a certain point, and I suspect that will be sooner rather than later, um, uh, the Palestinians will no longer have any women and children captives um, with which to continue um, uh, these releases. And then apparently the next stage would consist of um, uh, males who are no longer of military age, Israeli males who are no longer of military age. And then that will require a different formula. And, and you know, the, the, the latest um, extension of the ceasefire uh, expires, I think, in about uh, 10 or 12 hours. So that's a tall order um, to conclude negotiations, not just on a further extension of the existing um, truce, um, but on a new formula for extending uh, the truce. So we're either going to see a significant extension um, or a uh, renewal of uh, hostilities. And whether it's today or later, I do expect that Israel will um, uh, seek to um, uh, escalate for however temporarily its attacks on the Gaza Strip, at least for one or two more rounds before this comes to an end. Well, Muin Rabani, I want to thank you once again for your time and and your efforts. You you just kind of writing all the time. You must be, <laughs> and uh, and so we're very pleased here in Madison in the listening area to have uh, well, just another voice to give some context, some contours, some shaping to uh, the desert, which is uh, so much of mainstream coverage on, on this conflict. So once again, thank you. You've been listening to Muin Rabani, analyst, commentator, uh, co-editor of Jadalia, the electronic magazine. I uh, want to thank Jay Disauer for producing, Jack for engineering. I've been your host for this hour. My name is Alan Ruff. Thank you very much. Speaking with you. You're more than welcome. I'll be speaking with you all next week. With an admission that would never be reported Disregard the mainstream, media distorted 